This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. As America's unified border agency, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, works tirelessly to detect illicit trafficking of people, drugs, weapons, money, while also facilitating the flow of cross-border commerce and tourism. The border environment in which CBP works is dynamic and requires continual adaptation to respond to emerging threats and rapidly changing conditions. The U.S. Border Patrol plays a significant role in making this happen. How is the U.S. Border Patrol securing America's borders? What are some of the challenges in this area? And how is the Border Patrol using technology to meet its mission? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Carla Provost, Acting Chief of the U.S. Border Patrol within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Carla, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate being here. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. Don, welcome. Thank you. So uh, before we get into specific initiatives, uh, perhaps you could give us an overview of the history and mission of the U.S. Border Patrol. Uh, How many miles of border are you charged with covering? Certainly. So, you know, we just celebrated the 93rd anniversary um, of the Border Patrol birthday. So 1924, we've been around since then. And really in that time, our overarching mission hasn't changed that much, though uh, the Border Patrol is very flexible and and we adapt um, to different, maybe more specific missions. But our overarching mission has always been the same, and that's to protect our nation um, and our borders from anyone who would come through um, to do harm to this country. In, In general terms, that's the overarching mission. And what's the size of, like, what's the mileage you're covering, if you will? So along the southwest border with Mexico, we have 1,900, approximately 1,900 miles. On our northern border with Canada, about 4,000 miles. And um, about 2,000 miles of coastline that we patrol. Okay. So going from generals to specific, how is your office or uh, the Border Patrol organized? What's the size of your budget? And what are the number of folks that report to you? Well, we have approximately... 19,000 agents nationwide, spread out across 20 sectors. We have nine along the southwest border. We have eight sectors along the northern border and three on the coastal borders to include Puerto Rico. So the frontline agents, the 19,000 or so, are spread out throughout those, those sectors, and we have stations within the sectors then. So I have 20 sector chief patrol agents, as well as the Border Patrol Academy and a special operations group who report to my office here in headquarters. 
So I oversee all of those operations. Our budget runs about $4.3 billion uh, per year, which is about 30% of CBP's overall budget. So uh, what, are you, what are your specific responsibilities as the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol? Well, as I said before, I oversee all of the operations for all 20 sectors, uh, plus the academy and, and special operations group. I'm really the chief operating officer, um, report to the commissioner, and ultimately to the Department of Homeland Security as well. Um, I am here to as well be the representative for our frontline agents to ensure that they get the tools and the equipment that they need to be able to do their jobs safely. Great, great. And how, and how does that kind of support the overall missions of the rest of CBP? You have some very diverse missions, and how, how do you guys play, play together? For CBP, really our, our main missions are to protect the country from uh, those that would do harm, whether it's through illegally entering the country or even facilitating legal entry mm-hmm. through the ports of entry with our partners at the Office of Field Operations, as well as facilitating uh, legal uh, trade through the Office of, of Trade. So well, given your portfolio and the, the number of folks uh, and the significant uh, mission that you have, what are some of the top challenges you face and how have you sought to address those challenges? Well, right now I would say one of our top uh, challenges is recruitment uh-huh. efforts. As, as I know you know, the president has put out an executive order for us to hire 5,000 more Border Patrol agents. And there's a lot of competition out there uh-huh. when it comes to law enforcement right now. Uh, we're competing with other federal agencies, state and local as well. It's just a very limited pool of applicants in the law enforcement realm. So that's one of our biggest challenges at this point, not to mention we are down about 2,000 agents from where we are supposed to be in our in our baseline to begin with. Again, I want to congratulate you on, on taking this taking this new new role on with the Border Patrol. Um, definitely an exciting time to be be doing this and a uh, challenging time. What surprised you the most since uh, since taking this on? Well, I, I think for the day-to-day operations, there haven't been any real big surprises for me there. And the aspect is having been the sitting deputy chief, and that's my permanent role uh, for the Border Patrol, I, I pretty much knew the expectations. But that being said, just recently, I think with the changes within um, the Department of Homeland Security and Secretary yeah. Kelly going over to become the, the chief of staff, big loss for us, though I think very good for the administration. He has has really been a supporter of our frontline troops and and coming from his military background and being an operator, I think he really under, understands the challenges that our frontline uh, agents face on a day-to-day basis. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career path? Um, how did you get to where you are today? So I've got a little over 25 years in law enforcement, started off as a police officer in Kansas. Oh. I joined the Border Patrol in 1995, January of 1995, and uh, was originally stationed in Douglas, Arizona, which back then was a very, very busy location for us. I spent 11 and a half years there as both a frontline agent, a first-line supervisor, and a second-line supervisor, which would be back then was considered a field operations supervisor. Then I transferred over to Yuma, Arizona in 2006 because I was looking to go where it was the busiest. And it was the busiest place in the country at that time. And then about a year later, after Operation Jumpstart and a lot of support in infrastructure, barriers, uh, the numbers dropped dramatically. So I was there as a sector staff officer. Then I went out and ran my own Border Patrol station in Welton, Arizona, for a couple of years. Then I was the deputy chief patrol agent of the El Paso, Texas sector. And ultimately, after that, the chief patrol agent of the El Centro California Border Patrol sector. Did that for two and a half years. 
And then I stepped outside of my uniform for a year at the request of senior leadership within CBP, and I went over to be the deputy assistant commissioner of the Office of Professional Responsibility. So I did that for a year until this last October when I took on the role as deputy chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, and then in April I became the acting chief. So given your background, uh, both on the front line and now uh, as, uh, as a leader of the organization, uh, to your mind, what makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could illustrate how has your principles influenced your leadership style? Certainly. Well, you you know, you mentioned, Michael, you mentioned principles, and I think integrity first and foremost mm-hmm. is key to, to leadership, particularly in a law enforcement agency. But I would also say humility. Being a humble leader is something that I have found is the type of leader that I have followed and I think has worked well for me, realizing what all of the men and women that I work with bring to the table and that by no means am I uh, the subject matter expert. So knowing that what they bring to the table and how that can support me. And then I think you have to be a communicator, especially in today's day and age and how fast messages get out. You want to make sure you get the right message out to our, our men and women. And that is very, very difficult to do, especially in an organization with over 20,000 people when you add our support personnel. What are the strategic priorities for the U.S. Border Patrol? We will ask its acting chief, Carla Provost, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does the U.S. Coast Guard use strategic foresight to inform decision-making? What is the evergreen process? How is the federal community sharing strategic foresight best practices? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and so much more with Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager for the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Carla Provost, Acting Chief of the U.S. Border Patrol within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Finhagen. Uh, Carla, you, you mentioned that uh, the Border Patrol just celebrated uh, uh, its, uh, what was it? Um, 93rd, 93rd birthday. birthday. So to that end, I'd like to get a sense of what your strategic vision is for the Border Patrol. And would you briefly outline some of your core priorities? So, I mean, our our, our overarching priority is, is securing the border. And we do that through attempting to obtain operational control. Operational control is a term that I know you all have heard. We've used it in the past. The Border Patrol created operational control, and and under the current administration, that has made it into um, some of the president's executive orders. When we talk operational control, we're really talking about expanding our situational awareness, improving our capabilities in impedance and denial, and 
then bringing a law enforcement response to whatever it is that is, whether we're making an apprehension, an arrest, whatever is crossing the border, and bringing it to a resolution. So that takes the men and women portion of it. So in simplest of terms, border security, as I said earlier, mm-hmm. securing the, the, the nation from those who would do us harm are our ultimate goal. And it really is our overlying priority for our strategy. Uh, we couldn't do it without the frontline men and women. That's the other portion of that model. We have to have the agents that can go out and and make the apprehensions and bring that law enforcement resolution to whatever it is that's trying to cross our borders. Clearly, as as, as you know, your priorities line up fairly well with uh, the next question. Because I think border and immigration uh, security are the key, are keys to the Trump administration agenda. Um, what do you see as the the most uh, serious threats and critical trends that are shaping and informing your strategy? Certainly. Well, the transnational criminal organizations that work along the border, of course, are of, of huge concern to us. Mm-hmm. And that, whether it be alien uh, smuggling organizations or um, drug smuggling organizations, obviously the threat that they pose to the nation is of great concern to us. So when it comes to the narcotics that are being smuggled mm-hmm. into the to the country, the trends are shifting there as of late. And we've, uh, of course, have some concern about the hard narcotics that are coming across the border, whether it be methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, fentanyl. So that is certainly a trend that we are watching very closely, that we work with our partners in the intelligence community as we uh, attempt to affect those transnational criminal organizations. Same with the alien smuggling. As you have seen, of course, um, in some of the media, we're always concerned about that. They don't care about the individuals that they're smuggling across the border, and it is certainly a concern for us. We have created units such as our Borstar unit, which Mm -hmm. is a border search trauma and rescue unit in response to some of the tactics, techniques uh, that the alien smugglers use. Mm -hmm. So those are our main areas of concern. And of course, concerned about any of those that would bring anyone across that is looking to do more harm to terrorist threat to the country. So, you know, to to fully uh, implement a risk-informed and intelligence-driven operation mm-hmm. for uh, your organization, uh, you really need to continually enhance your situational awareness, correct? Yeah, and definitely. So what is being done to build and sustain that? Well, we work very closely with all of our other law enforcement partners, both federal, state, and, and local. We also work very closely with the intelligence community. That situational awareness is, is obtained through numerous things, whether it's through human intelligence, through signals intelligence. Working with our partners is, is really key to improving that situational awareness. Along with that is the technology that supports our efforts when it comes to detection, classification, identification of things that may be crossing our border. So we really work all, all of that together really helps enhance our situational awareness. Yeah, and just the, the, the nature of your business, uh, you know, requires the operation of mobile tactical equipment. You know, you have people out in the middle of middle of nowhere in, in harm's way and, you know, needing special equipment that the rest of the Department of Homeland Security may not always need. So can you elaborate on some of the investments being made to enhance your communication, transportation, surveillance capabilities? Certainly. So we have investments in numerous areas. First and foremost, we have agent portable surveillance systems, which provide tactical man-portable solutions for detection, identification, and classification. We have multiple mobile video surveillance capabilities that we utilize. Those provide both near and long-range mobile surveillance, whether it be with radar, with cameras. We have 
have is things as simple as night vision goggles for our men and women. We also have integrated fixed towers that provide both radar and camera remote video surveillance systems, which is something that we have utilized since I joined the Border Patrol, mm-hmm. but still to this day have infrared nighttime cameras that support our efforts, numerous types of sensors that uh, help us in this area. So we're really expanding our footprint on both fixed and mobile capabilities for our men and women. And, and do you feel that you have what you need and have the plans in place to get what you need moving forward? I, I think we're, we're in a very good place right now. We are always looking for new innovation and, and technology to support us. There are certain areas that we are expanding into, like small unmanned aerial systems right now. That's something that we are piloting that we are are very hopeful will will bring a benefit to our men and women out in the field. But we always look to industry to support uh, other efforts to increase our ability to identify, uh, detect, identify, and classify. So your agency continues to deploy proven effective technology to strengthen the border security operations between the ports in the land, air, maritime environments. Can you tell us any more about any of the investments being made between ports of entry? Or have you kind of covered that already? Certainly. I think I covered a lot of it. As I said before, the integrated fixed towers, the remote video surveillance systems. Something I didn't mention were the tactical aerostats and the relocatable towers. Oh, interesting. A little more of a mobile aspect. I wouldn't call them mobile, but relocatable. We're also moving into fiber optics detection to assist uh, along the border area and and looking forward to seeing what that brings to the table. You know, uh, there's been a lot of talk and I wanted to see if you can give us any insights into CBP's efforts to plan, design, and construct a physical wall on the southern border. What are you doing to work with industry and partner with the U.S. uh, Army Corps of Engineers, and what's the status so far? Certainly. So in my 22 and a half years in the Border Patrol, barriers have been part of a system that we utilize. A few years ago, you may have learned or have heard us speaking about what we call the three-legged stool, which was the right mixture of infrastructure and the, and the wall or the barrier fell into that technology and personnel. Today, we, we have a gap analysis process that has 12 master capabilities in it, but four that really, really focus on the on the wall. And those four are domain awareness, which is provided through the technology, mission readiness, which is provided by the men and women, access and mobility through the roads, and then impedance and denial, which is the wall. But you need all of those in a certain mixture in different mm-hmm. locations. The border is very diverse, and, uh, and there's really a no one-size-fits-all. But we look at those four master capabilities as we determine where we place wall, where it makes most in, the most sense for impedance and denial. And currently, we are working very closely with the Corps of Engineers. As, as you said, we've, we've in the past, of course, uh, put up uh, nearly 700 miles of barrier. And we are looking to expand that in areas where wall makes the most sense. There are numerous things that influence it. For instance, there may be locations that barrier does not make sense. Um, We have to consider the environmental impacts, land access rights, community impacts, and the safety of our men and women as they work along the border as well. But we are, as I said, working with the Corps of Engineers and many others to figure out um, exactly where that wall makes sense. So, you know, um, I was wondering, uh, how has the Border Patrol responded to the migrant surges that are occurring? So I think the key thing 
thing there is that we're flexible. We've had different surges in the past, and I think some of the most recent ones were the unaccompanied children surge that was in 2014, and once again um, this last year in 2016, as well as family unit surge from uh, the Northern Triangle countries. So there are many things we do. First and foremost, we're expanding our borders by we, we are working internationally with those countries to see what we can do to support in that arena. Also, as I spoke earlier about some of the mobile technology that we are utilizing, that is a huge benefit to mm. us in the aspect that we can move it where the risk or where the threat is. At the same time, we also move our resources. During those surges in the past, in the specifically in the uh, South Texas portion and in the area known as the Rio Grande Valley sector for us, we have brought agents and, and officers in to those locations um, and on temporary assignment to help support the efforts in that area. So having a mobile workforce, having the uh, mobile technology to, to assist us, and really ultimately figuring out where that permanent barrier works best for us helps when it comes to the migrant surges as well. And then we work with our partners in ICE enforcement and removal operations and uh, health and human services when it came to the children and, and the surges there. How is the U.S. Border Patrol pursuing innovative strategies to secure the U.S. border? We will ask Carla Provost, acting chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Carla Provost, Acting Chief of the U.S. Border Patrol within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. So, Carla, you mentioned earlier that one of the biggest challenges you're facing is the hiring, the ramping up of hiring, and I'd like to delve a little deeper into that. Um, what are some of the opportunities and challenges in this space, and what would you like to see happen to streamline hiring and help you get the folks you need? Certainly. So, uh, obviously, like all other law enforcement agencies, we want to attract the best people, the, the most qualified that we can. And we're, we're all competing, as I said earlier, for that limited applicant pool. But it's not just the, the numbers that pose hurdles for us. Changing generational values, the patchwork of statewide legalization of medical and recreational marijuana use um, is impacting us, and, and a growing mistrust of law enforcement. Those all impact our recruiting efforts. So we're really competing for a decreasing applicant pool. But that being said, 
As I stated, we're, we're looking to hire 5,000 more Border Patrol agents, as well as personnel within CBP in the Office of Field Operations and our Air and Marine operations. So what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about streamlining. One of the things that we are doing is trying to streamline the hiring process, and we've done a very good job in that aspect. It used to take approximately 469 days to hire on an applicant, so over much long over a year, and we're down to about 160 days. In the process. Now, when I say that we're streamlining the effort, we are not cutting anything in the aspect of it. We're not lowering standards in any way, shape, or form. We've just really looked at the process and figured out ways to streamline, whether it's in the testing, whether it's in the polygraph that we do, the entrance exam, the physical fitness tests. The applicants still have to make it through the entire background process through our our basic academies. Uh, But that's an area that we've really been successful in streamlining and speeding up the process. We're also making some progress with our National Frontline Recruiting Command. We're holding this year in FY17 uh, approximately 2,500 recruitment events. Um, We've held nearly 1,100 special emphasis programs targeted specifically at veterans and minorities. We've forged partnerships with the CMA Music Festival, uh, the Spartan Race, Obstacle Course, Country Jam in Colorado, the Big Ten, and one that's very close to my heart, the Big 12, because that was uh, was the Big 8 when (laughs) I went to school, but but it's my conference. (laughs) Um, We've improved our engagement with potential recruits by launching an applicant care program, which pairs our recruiters and applicants um, on select job announcements to reduce uh, the attrition, kind of what the fatigue. So they have, our applicants have somebody specific to reach out to. So we've taken a lot of steps there. And I would say uh, the last thing is we're finally, we're getting much better at using technology to support our recruiting and our hiring efforts. We've established a digital media presence through LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. Indeed. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. We launched a mobile app called CBP Jobs for iPhone and Android and available on iTunes and Google Play. So these are things where we're finally really using technology to support our hiring efforts. And then folks could go to those, use those apps to apply? They certainly can. Uh, They certainly can. So it's a nice segue into the next question I have, which is uh, with the increased focus on the southern border and new focus on policy enforcement, do you see any major shifts in location of enforcement needs, is there an increased need on the northern border? So um, certainly there is an increased need on the northern border. Now, because of, of illegal immigration flow, the southern border is always going to be much more highly staffed um, mm-hmm. than the northern border. Currently, we have a little over 2,000, right around 2,000 agents on, on mm-hmm. the northern border, and we will be staffing up to at least um, 2212, I believe. That being said, our trainees, our new hires, all go to the southwest border for training. So we'll have some mobility opportunities to move some of our folks up to the northern and to the coastal border as well. The threat there is, is very different. When you heard me earlier speak about operational control yeah. and we were, I was talking impedance and denial and situational awareness, on the northern and coastal borders, situational awareness is really key to our operations. So working with our partners, the intelligence community, bringing some technology up to the northern border, those are the types of things that we rely on to address the threats on our northern as well as our coastal border. So shifting a little bit, we, we're seeing new hard and hard to detect lethal narcotics in any country like fentanyl. Obviously, U.S. Border Patrol is crucial to uh, protecting us from, from these kind of things. 
but they're changing so fast. How are we preparing our workforce, humans, canines, others, to deal with these threats, these new types of drugs and drug trafficking? Well, it's certainly a, a concern for us, the officer safety risk that comes with, with this. So it's something that uh, we have, have really been taking an interest in and looking what more we can do to protect our men and women, to protect our canines. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. they're, they're agents to us as well. Mm-hmm. So some of the things we've done is we've implemented a fentanyl uh, mitigation team that leads our efforts in addressing the threat of fentanyl and to provide guidance to the field. Also, extra training um, to protect uh, our agents from accidental exposure. That's an area of real concern for us. We've also identified state-of-the-art detection technology and decontamination equipment, and we've placed those at our traffic checkpoints. For Border Patrol, that's the area of of highest risk, I I think, for our men and women. Um, But we also have met our stations. And uh, we continue to partner and collaborate with our federal and state and local law enforcement in establishing new detection capabilities in in these areas with these hard narcotics coming through. So, uh, Carla, uh, what is being done to enhance uh, detection, interdiction, and disruption of illegal cross-border activities? And how does integrated operational planning and execution factor into these efforts? Certainly. Well, uh, we've developed really a robust planning and gap analysis process. The process allows us to identify our gaps along the border and prioritize those gaps against the threat picture. And then we ultimately execute a budget that puts us in the best enforcement posture to handle those threats. We're constantly looking for ways to improve our process, collaborating with our partners in industry and in the academic world to find solutions to our gaps and to develop innovative ways to identify vulnerabilities and enhance our detection and interdiction capabilities. You know how they, they really say it takes a network to defeat a network. And, and on this phrase, we have expanded our international footprint, as I mentioned earlier, with the emphasis on Mexico, Central America, and South America, deploying agents to those areas um, and, and partnering to disrupt the transnational criminal organizations in those areas. The relationships have facilitated information flow, providing us um, and our interagency partners with a threat picture that we can better better anticipate, plan, and address the threats prior to them reaching our borders. It's really a way of pushing out Mm -hmm. our borders for us. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, we're building and expanding our surveillance capability to include highly advanced equipment serving as a sort of an alarm system uh, for our men and women. When a detection is made, it's immediately passed to a command centers and agents in the field. Our tracking and sign cutting and modeling application that we call TSM allows us to monitor the activity display it in our command centers, and then uh, notify the agents and track that. So I, I think on the analytics side of the house through what we call our capabilities gap analysis process, or C-GAP, uh, we're making a, a lot of advances in that area. So moving, moving back a little bit into technology, but you hear a lot about big data today, data analytics. Um, and obviously, you know, within CBP, you, the missions partner with the technology side of CBP. Certainly. How are you? How are you seeing? You know, the greater use of, of big data and data analytics as a tool to drive your decision making day to day, and for your for your officers in the field. So border security and operational control are part of a layered approach in achieving a safe border for us. Of course, there's no silver bullet. As I said before, it's, there's no one size fits all. But we utilize sophisticated and scientifically valid analytical modeling frameworks to identify appropriate border metrics to measure and assess risk and threats among land, air, and sea environments. We do this through our capabilities gap analysis process. With respect to illegal immigration across the the Southwest land border, 
We've made significant investments in border enforcement, personnel, technology, and infrastructure, resulting in improved confidence levels in the situational awareness of our operating environment. The consequence delivery system, as well uh, as we call CDS, is the program and measurement tool that Border Patrol uses to analyze the effectiveness and the efficiency of uh, our consequences. So CBP has undergone reorganization and realignment. Yes. Um, how uh, has this uh, reorganization helped the agency, and how has it affected your organization specifically? Well, you know, uh, CBP has been around for, what, a little over 14 years mm-hmm. now, since 2003. And we've gone through reorganizations uh, a few times. I think we're really uh, getting to a point where we are well-refined on how best to operate. We have four what we call operational components run by um, executive assistant commissioners like myself – within Customs and Border Protection that report to the commissioner. And that is Border Patrol, the Office of Field Operations, Air and Marine Operations, and the Office of Trade. And then we have two large support functions under enterprise services and operational support in this new structure that we have. And from what I have seen thus far, we've only been doing this for maybe a year or so. It's working very well in our favor, improving communication, increasing our ability to support the frontline men and women. So, uh, Carla, would you tell us more about how you're leveraging partnerships to improve operational outcome? And how does CBP manage the sharing of information and intelligence among its uh, federal partners, its state and local partners, and interestingly enough, its international partners? Certainly. So we have our own um, intelligence office or office of intelligence within uh, Customs and Border Protection. But that being said, our joint efforts involving intelligence collection... uh, To include joint task force strategies with other law enforcement partners have led to significant gains in this area and has allowed us really to degrade and dismantle some of the transnational criminal organizations that are out there. We work closely, as you stated, with our federal, state, local partners, both on the investigative side of the house as well as the intelligence side. And those really work hand in hand when it comes to expanding and leveraging our partnerships. And... We work very closely with the government of Mexico and the Northern Triangle countries, as well as Canada, when it comes to partnering and sharing as much information as we can to address any threats, any cross-border threats. Can I pick up on that question around the international aspects? That you, you made a comment earlier about expanding the borders. Yes. And I know CBP proper does all that with the uh, at the ports of entry. Ports. But do you, does the Border Patrol have a presence Globally? We have a presence in numerous countries, countries. those okay. that, that, that really impact our areas of concern. So, obviously, with Mexico, the Northern mm-hmm. Triangle, but, and we are expanding that footprint over the last few years. We have a foreign operations division that works closely with our international affairs uh, office Offices. within okay. CBP. And we're expanding that footprint on a regular basis. We've already added several countries this year alone that we are putting a Border Patrol agent or Border Patrol agents in place to partner with those countries to assist in expanding that border outward. Just another quick question around the international Certainly. is, is there a, an association or a uh, consortium 
of agencies from uh, different uh, countries uh, that, that maybe get together around border issues and share uh, lessons learned and best practices? Yes, we do that quite often with our international partners. We just had something in May uh, down in Miami in which we brought in numerous countries, numerous countries that we partner with and have worked very closely with, and we share best practices, and we support their efforts in their own border mm-hmm. security. So you mentioned earlier as one of the uh, qualities of a leader is integrity, especially in law enforcement. And I'd like to, to, to elaborate more on that. What are you doing in Border Patrol to have a comprehensive integrity strategy? And what's the most important aspect of success? What defines success for you in this area? So that is a critically important area for us. Uh, I'm sure you've heard time and again the the concern with our men and women, whether it's in the Border Patrol or our partner agency at the Ports of Entry and Office of Field Operations, uh, that our frontline men and women are put in, in precarious situations at times. So integrity is of utmost importance for the agency. The Office of Professional Responsibility within CBP, and as I mentioned yes. earlier, I worked there as the second in command for a little over a year because of that that really speaks to the importance that CBP uh, really takes a look at, at our professional responsibility. It used to be called the Office of Internal Affairs. But first and foremost, it, it really is that mindset mindset of see something, say something, something. and getting that out to our men and women and talking to them regularly about it. My experience is that 99.9% of our workforce are great, upstanding, hardworking men and women, and they don't want to be working with anyone whose integrity has been compromised. Uh, It puts them at risk, first and foremost. So we've really done a lot over the last couple of years on a messaging campaign, on continuous training, communication, growing the Office of Professional Responsibility, something that we often remind those as they want to grow CBP, we need to also grow the the Office of Professional Responsibility. We do five-year background uh, reinvestigations on all of our employees to ensure that we, we keep that integrity up and Really, uh, our men and women are, do a great job of if they see something suspicious, they, re- they report it. So technology is playing a huge role in the current border environment. So what do you see as some of the biggest opportunities in the future, looking forward and what's happening in commercial and everywhere else for, for technology to assist your mission? And maybe talk a little bit, too, about how is our adversary using technology against us? Certainly. So technology, as I said before, it's key. It's one of our our four master capabilities that we look at in really improving our situational awareness. It provides critical capabilities to our frontline agents for detecting, identifying, uh, and classifying whatever it is that has come across the border. So the Border Patrol has been doing a really good job of, of, and I think we can do more when it comes to harnessing the power of startups and innovation corridors like Silicon Valley, for instance, to augment our current surveillance comms, intelligence, and data analysis. As I mentioned before, we have a myriad of assets to secure the border to include fixed and mobile towers, mobile biometric devices, tunnel detection, ground sensors. These things are critical to our day-to-day operations. On the other end, our adversaries, of course, utilize uh, technology to their benefit as well. They are utilizing radio communication systems, small uh, unmanned aerial systems themselves to coordinate their operations against our officers. 
They have unlimited funding and purchase the best communications and surveillance gear commercially available. And I think the key thing is they are not hindered by laws and policies. <laughs> and of course, we are. So that, that gives them a, a bit of a tactical ad- advantage to us. Talking about tactical advantages, I think there's a lot of tactical advantages that your, your officers have in the field from using good old-fashioned instinct and non-technology assets. So maybe I think something to end with here on on this note is, like, what are some of the most powerful non-technology-related tools that you have at your disposal? Well, you just mentioned it. Our greatest asset are our men and women on the front line. Though Border Patrol has has developed and and changed over the 93 years that we've been around, a lot of the work that we do hasn't changed. The ability to track and sign cut, uh, the ability we, – we still use horse patrol today, and that is a critical element, non-technology element. We have the canines, as you mentioned earlier, when it comes to detection. We have agents on everything from bicycles. I rode bicycles back in the day, so our bike patrol agents, uh, all-terrain vehicles. But it really – all of that comes back to the men and women that are out there day in and day out, and that they can never be replaced, what they bring to the table. You mentioned it. Their intuition, the knowledge that they bring, the experience that they bring is really key. When you combine that with the infrastructure and the technology, it really is the whole package. So, Carla, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career – in public service? Well, certainly do it. It's a great opportunity. I've been doing this for over 25 years now, and and I can tell you from firsthand experience, there's really no career that I can think that is more important or effective in creating a safe, secure environment for all of us here in the United States. The agents, the men and women within the Border Patrol are the most committed men and women I've, I've ever known. That's why I have stayed here for 22 and a half years of my career. Though policing's changed across the country um, and throughout the years, those changes really, they've been driven by cultural changes, new technologies. But what hasn't changed is that profound commitment to service to country. So it's really, I, I would say, Come on, we're hiring. Yeah. We're looking for the best and brightest. Um, and really, it it comes down to the great work that men and women in law enforcement are doing, um, and not just in the Border Patrol, but in the Border Patrol. I, I can't say enough for what our women, men and women are doing. They are top-notch. They're really a family. They take care of one another, and they believe in the mission. And it's an important mission, protecting the homeland. Very important. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks for coming in today. Oh, I really and, appreciate and, the opportunity to yeah. come talk to you today. And Don and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you so much. I appreciate that, Michael and Don. Next up, a special technology edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring how technology can transform the way government does business. How does the U.S. Coast Guard use strategic foresight to inform decision-making? What is the evergreen process? How is the federal community sharing strategic foresight best practices? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and so much more with Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager for the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. 
It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Each week, government executives and thought leaders join me for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. I examine key questions that, when answered cogently, can provide us with a better understanding of the business of government. How can technology transform the way government does business? How can the federal government reduce costs and improve services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies? What are those specific cost reduction strategies? Today, I'll explore these questions and the recent IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology, with Dan Chenick, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and Haynes Cooney. Dan, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you, as always. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Haynes, welcome. First Thank time. You. Thank you very much, Michael. Appreciate it. Maybe not it. The, the last, hopefully. Hopefully not. So, Dan, I want to talk about uh, the recent uh, TCC report, the Technology CEO Council report, The Government We Need. What was the purpose of the report? What prompted its development? So the idea is that companies over the last several decades have modernized their operations in ways that have achieved significant savings in very large enterprises that are often multinational in scale. Government is similarly complex and in many cases more complex, but uh, governments have traditionally not adopted technology to achieve these kinds of savings as quickly as companies have. There's been pockets of modernization in government that have worked well. The, the Technology CEO Council, which is a, a group of leading companies, IBM uh, and several other companies uh, are involved, took a look at this t- concept several years ago around how could government modernize to, be, to achieve the efficiencies that private sector enterprise have done and produced a report um, six years ago uh, called One Trillion Reasons, um, which identified ways that the government could, could drive significant savings over a decade. This report's an, essentially an update and bringing forward those ideas into the uh, further into the 21st century with the advent of new technologies, new opportunities, and new uh, practices and lessons learned that government can apply. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the center uh, recently as well uh, published a companion piece called um, Transforming Government Through Technology. Why did we Why did we decide to do a piece, a standalone piece, and how does it complement the report? Are they basically the same reports? So they're they're the same topics, and the reports draw on on the same content. Uh, we thought, and we work with the Technology CEO Council uh, staff uh, and team to say that you, a companion report that's sort of shorter, um, sort of summary form that can be handed out in uh, and sort of get to the issues. Uh, the, the TCC report really provides a lot of the depth and detail. The center report's more of a summary that you can sort of get into it as, as a decision maker uh, at the first instance. Wonderful. Great. So, uh, Haynes, the report, um, both the TCC report and our report, um, assert that I think um, – Sustainable cost reductions of more than a trillion dollars over 10 years if the government adopts private sector uh, strategies. Before we delve into each one of these strategies, can you give us a high-level overview of each? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. And and really part of our focus on making the recommendations in this uh, set of reports is really about implementation and implementability. And so we wanted to frame them in uh, a way that was familiar uh, to government leaders thinking about how they have executed programs in the past. And so there are really sort of four categories uh, that we've used. Uh, The the first one is really about improving resource management. 
So leveraging cross-agency opportunities, thinking about integration across domains and networks, thinking about consolidation of core services. The second area is around improving government decision-making. So how are we more effectively leveraging available data uh, and making better informed choices? Uh, The third is investing in modern technology. Um, Strategic investments are key to achieving some of the long-term cost efficiencies and delivering the performance and services that are expected from a modern, efficient enterprise. Uh, Citizens uh, have come to expect a certain level of service from anyone, whether that's uh, private sector or the government, and the government has some room to catch up in some of those areas. And then the fourth is really around optimization of processes. So uh, it's critical that the government recognizes and reinforces a need to continually uh, reinforce and improve processes. It's not a one-time thing. Uh, This is building in the flexibility and agility to continue to keep up with technological trends. And so across those four areas, we've highlighted some specific things, and we can probably get into the detail. So, uh, Dan, uh, would you define for us shared services uh, um, and... um How does it work? What are the benefits realized by the use of shared services? Sure. Shared services is a concept that's been adopted in industry um, for several decades. As companies have modernized, they've they've looked to basically reduce uh, the need for separate technology, separate financial management, separate HR uh, on the administrative side, um, uh, operations, technology process operations. So they basically share those operations across their operating divisions. The federal government about 15 years ago actually started down the road toward shared services by designating certain lines of business that are similar to those administrative back office functions, predominantly human resources and financial management. Um, And uh, the idea is to say that agencies don't need to build their own uh, financial management systems or their own HR systems and processes that they can go to a provider who can provide that at scale, thus giving better service because they're providing a uh, similar service across a broad range of customers for a good cost uh, and enabling them to redirect their limited budgets uh, away from having to recreate redundant administrative support stores and can put those more toward their mission. You guys, in the report, it outlines a couple of examples in the federal space, um, the HRLOB. Could you give, give us uh, highlight those first? Absolutely. So the Office of Personnel Management has led, uh, over the last 15 years, uh, a migration across federal HR systems uh, following both sort of mandatory uh, uh, processes and systems that are being used that are delivered by both Public sector providers, meaning agencies that are that are expert in understanding the federal rules and and procedures for hiring, payment, uh, retire, health insurance, all of the things that make an HR experience uh, happen, as well as private sector experts in doing so. Uh, in addition, uh, OPM has helped uh, to drive a consolidation around payroll. Um, over the last uh, 15 years, which really has brought down uh, the cost of delivering checks to all federal employees who get paid every week for what they do uh, significantly and has made that process much more effective. Dan, the second strategy outlined in the report focuses on fraud and improper payment uh, prevention. What is an improper payment within the federal context, and what's the current state picture of improper payments in the federal government? So this has been an issue in the government for for decades. The, a, a lot of what the government does is take tax dollars and provide it as needed services um, for healthcare, for housing, for education, uh, and it does so through a series of programs and a series of agencies. Um, and and it spends a lot of time trying to understand who is eligible. Uh, and how much money are they eligible for, and when should they get that money so they can pay their school bill, so they can pay a medical bill, et cetera. So understanding who is eligible, 
uh, understanding how much they're eligible for and understanding when they need to get the money matters a lot. And and we're talking billions uh, and really hundreds of billions of dollars of the federal budget uh, across both discretionary programs, meaning programs that are funded every year by Congress, as well as what we call mandatory programs like Social Security or Medicaid, which are funded based on need. Um, and those are very important programs. Millions of Americans depend on those dollars. And getting that right matters a lot to the lives of Americans. It also matters a lot for taxpayers to make sure that we're not um, allocating money improperly to the wrong person at the wrong amount or at the wrong time. And those would be improper payments. That's great. So, Haynes, um, how can the government take advantage of advanced analytical models to predict and prevent fraud? And perhaps you could highlight some of the positive examples in this area. Certainly. Yeah, and I think this, again, brings brings us back to some of the enterprise-wide opportunity and seeking patterns across programs and agencies, thinking about some of the data related to the eligibility criteria that Dan just referenced, uh, whether or not folks are eligible, whether or not folks uh, are due for certain types of benefits, and also keeping in mind the timeliness factor, that uh, many of these benefits are very time sensitive and it's important for the folks who, who need the benefits to be receiving those in a timely fashion. So thinking about uh, identification of patterns in data that we see uh, and using things like cognitive technologies to anticipate uh, what kind of behaviors or, or uh, what kind of uh, indicators there may be in the data that would bring out uh, a record that you might even flag. doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, uh, but it is something that uh, requires a little further investigation and, and helps focus actual human decision makers' attention and time on those specific records. In terms of specific examples, uh, at the state level, uh, we've had a lot of success uh, with the New York State Tax Authority. Uh, They've used predictive modeling to flag about $1.2 billion worth of claims uh, that may be improper or questionable and allows their their leaders to take a look at those claims a little more deeply before those payments are made. Um, And that's uh, up to about 20% of the total payments that they were examining uh, were flagged in that manner. So that's a pretty significant chunk and something that in the report we cite as, you know, if that ratio, even a fraction of that ratio were to be scaled up to the federal level, that's quite an opportunity for savings. Um, The IRS uh, in 2014 has a return review program that identified about a million fraudulent claims. And so, again, at the federal level, similar story where flagging those uh, uh, requests for returns, uh, flagging those claims uh, for refunds, and making sure that the proper attention is paid there uh, rather than boiling the ocean. It's really focusing decision-makers' attention. Um, And then in terms of capabilities, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, CMS, they have a fraud detection service in place. uh, But they're one of the few agencies that really has as sophisticated technology in that area uh, as they do. And thinking about how that kind of capability could be either shared or developed in other agencies is really an opportunity worth looking into, I think, because multiple agencies starting to build out that kind of technology is really going to be something that not only is beneficial at the individual agency level, but if there are economies of scale, uh, we start to learn faster. We start to learn from some of that enterprise-wide perspective uh, and maybe discover some things that we wouldn't necessarily have thought about uh, purely within a single agency's context. Mm-hmm. So how can uh, cognitive computing systems and capabilities help agencies transform data into insight, and what are the potential benefits? So one of the great benefits of cognitive computing, as, as Haynes pointed out, is that it, it enables technology um, 
to supplement human decision-making in ways that you, we could never have done before. Uh, and it, it can allow a person to basically see if somebody's coming into their office for and asking about a government benefit, the person may make a decision uh, based on what they know. Um, and based on sort of the fact that they've re- reviewed the, the rules of that program in the last week. With the advent of cognitive computing, with cognitive tools, they can basically look across all of the information about programs, about how those programs have been applied, about how they've been applied differentially across states, across income groups, and have that information at their fingertips to make a much more personalized and effective decision in real time uh, because they've taken advantage of these technologies that enable them to look at large amounts of analytical data, structured, unstructured data, and, may, and really come, come up with a decision that's much more informed for the person. Mm-hmm. Haynes mentioned earlier in our conversation the importance of implementing a lot of these strategies. So, Dan, um, what were some of the suggestions outlined in your report on how to implement these strategies? Right. Well, so for the procurement uh, issue, one of the areas that we talked about is something specific called, that, that we're referring to as cognitive category management. Uh, and we've actually done some follow-up work on that um, in the procurement arena to talk about you could use technology to take what the government center on category management, which we've talked about on this show and, and the center has talked about as well, uh, and apply these cognitive techniques to enable the government to save uh, you know, a significant portion of that $450 billion. So that's one example of, a, of, of an implementation arena. Uh, uh, other Areas that the the report talked about were more procedural, um, things like um, empower, but but important things like hiring a strong federal chief information officer, hiring strong chief information officers in agencies, and empowering them uh, to make decisions that can direct IT spending in ways that uh, can achieve efficiencies. Taking an enterprise perspective that we talked about earlier, um, using cross-agency councils like the Chief Information Officers Council and making them uh, action-oriented in terms of their ability to work together on behalf of the taxpayer to create program efficiencies and effectiveness. Uh, understanding how to bring in industry best practices in an ongoing fashion. So this report was a point in time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there's always going to be the the uh, evolution of technology is getting more rapid uh, e- each day. Uh, and so understanding how to know what's happening in the commercial space and how to leverage that, adapt that as appropriate for, for use in, in government is something that's very important. Uh, and then finally, understanding what to do first, mm-hmm. understanding how to use uh, the uh, tools like the budget process, the, the fiscal 2018 budget, which is being uh, discussed even now. Uh, OMB presented its initial budget proposal uh, last month, uh, and then sequencing those steps, all of the steps that we've talked about uh, here, in a way where you identify the achievable um, and identify a near-term strategy, and then also have in, in mind the longer-term steps that are needed to achieve lasting success. So what's next for the insights and and the recommendations outlined in these reports? What's How are you getting the message out? What are you doing to make sure that these things are listened to? So we're working in partnership with the Technology CEO Council and with our colleagues across uh, IBM and uh, and the centers having discussions in a variety of different locations. We're talking with congressional staff, talking with uh, administration officials, with OMB, um, uh, with uh, the uh, new uh, officials who are coming in and taking leadership roles in the new administration to try to basically help them understand here are the private sector practices that they may be familiar with. In their in their worlds before they came to government, and here's a pathway to adopt them in government, so that you can really achieve the successes in ways that are um, uh, in keeping with government rules, procedures, and the unique circumstances of individual agencies. Terrific, Dan Haynes. Thanks for coming on. It's been great to have you. Thank you, Michael. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Dan Chenick, 
Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, and Haynes Cooney. Also joining our conversation, Harla Provost, Acting Chief of the U.S. Border Patrol within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. My co-host from IBM has been Don Finhagen. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How does the U.S. Coast Guard use strategic foresight to inform decision-making? What is the evergreen process? How is the federal community sharing strategic foresight best practices? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and so much more with Commander Eric Popeil, Program Manager for the U.S. Coast Guard's Evergreen Program. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.